Krantor wins both ways. Rule of the house. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is our 25th episode, our Silver Jubilee. Yay. And we are talking about Gambit, written by Robert Holmes. He's back for a second time. Directed by George Spenton Foster. He's back too. Yes. First broadcast on the 20th of March, 1979. Ratings 6.6 .6 million. So down a little bit down from the from 7. But hovering sort of where a lot of these season 2 episodes yep. have been hovering. Richard, this is once again my episode. I swapped you the Gambit for the Keeper. Yay. <laughs> uh, not a reflection of anything other than we try to lead the episodes we feel we have the most to talk about. Yep. So hopefully I, I have more excitement and things to talk about with Gambit. I'll ask you your general thoughts, but I'll open the batting by simply saying my one sentence summary of this after I watched it was very simply, great script, great cast, occasionally let down by a director attitude of that'll do. Mm-hmm. But in a bit more detail, Richard, what are your initial thoughts on Gambit? Generally much the same as yours. I do think it's a pretty good script. And yes, look, the direction sometimes lets it down a bit. We have been critical of George Benton Foster on some of his other episodes. But regardless of what my thing is directing, he does cast well. This is a very good cast. And I have to say the location filming in this is better than it's been. One of the things we've really knocked him about in a couple of episodes has been the lack of care in trying to make a filmed location look like space. Yep. And that's not the case here. Some of that location work is really good. No, he does succeed there with that. Having said that, I am probably going to commit a bit of fan heresy here. <laughs> it's not like you. <laughs> and say, look, I was entertained by it, but overall, I don't know. It just seemed to be missing something. It's good, but not great. I've been a big fan of this episode ever since I saw it the first time. It's actually one of the first episodes I saw. Right, okay. Because it was screened at the convention back in 1990 where Dudley Simpson was one of the guests. Okay. Which... So they chose an episode where he doesn't do the music. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was an excuse to show some random episodes of Black 7 in the video right. room. And so I saw this and, again, without really knowing what Black 7 was as a kid, was just sort of like drawn into this wild, bizarre world. So this is the one that hooked you, is it? Or uh... It certainly got me interested. It does what Good Blake 7 does well, which is creates a different and exciting world. I don't know if when we do our season special in a few episodes' time, this will be in my top three, but it's going to be on the shortlist. Okay. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's true. One point that I will make is that in a moment we're going to talk about the three plot threads in the episode unfortunately or fortunately depending on your point of view the a thread is the most straightforward one and mm -hmm. the most interesting and exciting one is the c thread yeah i'd agree with that which does leave a little bit of imbalance in the episode i also feel as though this is one where you really feel as though the arc is starting to go up a gear and that we're heading for the end of the season and that something's going on there. But I have a feeling you've got a different take on that. Yeah, on one level I think you're right, because they got the hint that they needed to find Dockley, and obviously now they've found Dockley. I don't know, this one just felt more like it was set up 
probably for the next couple of weeks. Look, there is some great moments in the script, and you're right, look, the C-plot in particular is a lot of fun. It's just an episode overall where I don't think very much really happens. But what doesn't happen is really fun. I mean, you're right, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but, for example, Serverland and Crantor having a long scene where it's just two people talking in a room, mm-hmm. but it's those two characters Indeed. talking Robert Holmes' dialogue in a room. So Yeah, it's probably lacking maybe a big wow moment, perhaps. We'll talk about that when yep. we get to the episode. Okay. So, look, let's dive in. There are three plot narratives here. The A plot, I think, is the Blake, Travis, and Dockley plot, yep. which is about finding Dockley to advance the Star One arc. Yep. Then plot B is what Crantor and Servalan are doing. Trying to outmaneuver each other, yeah. That's right. And then plot C, which is really the sort of the light and just sort of fun yeah. bit of the plot, is A1 and Villa. That said, though, there are plenty of characters that move between this. Compared to some Blake 7 episodes where the A and the B plot basically don't mix at all. And indeed, Killer being one where the two halves of the base never really interact. I know you did flag that when we had our discussion. That's right, whereas here, this feels like a real place where people do move between the arcs. You get Travis encountering Serverland briefly. Crantor is involved in the Avon and Villa plot because mm-hmm. it's all happening in his casino. So I do think it works. But let's dive into the A plot, Blake, Travis and Dockley. I noted here we have another of what I'm calling these random openings where we don't open with Serverland, we don't open with the Liberator, we just open in a space bar with mm-hmm. space people doing space things and drinking space drinks. You've got a character you don't know. Yes, accosting another character you don't know. That's right, and until Travis comes in, and again, by now Travis we know he's an outlaw. It's a very Western feel. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Dennis Carey, who plays Dockley, is great from the start. The way he delivers that line... 30 of them have every right. And do all your ex-patients try to kill you? 30 of them have every right, Cheney. You just know the way he delivers that. That's significant. He doesn't do it in a overt, 30 of them have every... Like, he doesn't do it like no. ben, Benedict Cumberbatch would do it. He does it... <laughs> sorry to Benedict Cumberbatch fans. <laughs> he does it in just a really subtle way. We get the talk about the backstory on the Bari. And again, Robert Holmes, when he writes for here, when he writes for mm. Doctor Who, is very good at having these conversations that feel natural, but create a whole world out there. In a very short space of time, yep. yeah, with a few lines of dialogue. I mean, look, Dockley at this point clearly is unaware, really, of who Travis really is. Probably one set-up note for this... Clearly some time has elapsed, well, since Pressure Point, and I think really probably since Countdown and, and Voice from the Past. Blake, now he knows Dockley is the person he's looking for, has perhaps been using ORAC to sit there and try and locate Dockley's movements. Yes, and it wasn't just a Google search, where is Dockley? There no. would have been lots of plotting his movements. We can assume sort of Carmen San Diego style. There's been, been lots of going <laughs> there and we've just missed Dockley. Yeah, we're not told really why Travis and Serverlang know he's a person of interest. They've obviously been doing a bit of digging, perhaps in the aftermath of Pressure Point, extrapolating a little bit. I guess the point I did have here, though, clearly Blake found Provine before they did. Uh, Yes. Continuing on the Western point, and I think you're right to raise it, I mean, let's just flag it right here. Dockley is Doc Holliday. Yes. And I think actually Robert Holmes was originally going to call him basically that. Yeah. I think that's about to make it slightly more subtle. Spacing it up a bit. Yeah. (laughs) But it does continue along those sort of tropes. You get Sheeny, who's the world-wise bar lady. Yep. Travis, once Klein, as he's known as, gets too drunk and goes to collapse out the back, 
Travis is then okay to sit down and have a drink. A Vita's aid. A Vita's aid. And again, then we get all that sort of Boucher Western dialogue, you know. Oh yes, I'm a hero too. Let me make a couple of good points and then a negative. Sheenie yeah. is one of the great female characters, I think, in Black 7. I really like her performance. I yeah. like the way she's a strong, independent woman. Later on, she'll stand up to Sheverdick. We also get an episode where both the female characters get to go down to the planet with Blake. However, yes. it's in the plot that Robert Holmes is not as interested in. And they don't really get to do anything. And they don't really get to do anything. No, so... I mean, all they do is really defer to Blake the whole time. Yes. So, look, let's keep with Travis for a moment. Yep. Serverland says a little later in the episode that he's been there for weeks. Now, we don't really get an idea of how long he's been with Dockley or how long Dockley's been on the run. But it's long enough for Sheenie and Dockley and Travis to have all made connections in different ways with each other. Yes, and she obviously now is starting to build a relationship with Klein. Yes. That she clearly at least cares about him on some level. Yes. And indeed, she's also seen through Travis that he has an ulterior motive. And Klein has also been there long enough that Crantor's agents later are able to identify him and find him very quickly. Yeah. So that he's obviously known to his informants. Yeah. What do you make of Brian Croucher in this one? I know you had a note there that he's underplaying. I actually was going to go a bit better than that. I think this is arguably his best performance in the series thus far. I agree. I think, is it his best performance in the whole series? We'll have to find out. He's got two more episodes. <laughs> but best so far, yeah. Maybe a couple of those scenes in trial would be up there. Yeah. But I think by now, Croucher has got enough confidence of both himself and enough confidence in his knowledge of the character yep. that he actually probably isn't looking as much for the director's take. No, being directed by George Speton Foster doesn't matter as much now. That's yeah. right, he can sort of self-direct to a certain extent because <laughs> that does come across. That said, at the start of this episode, we talked about a few scenes that had a bit of a that'll-do attitude. Yes. The first of them is up here now, which is, uh, look, let's just play the line. What's this about? You're being collected. We're Krantor's rubbish collectors. Collected? Yeah! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't quite know what anyone's going for there, really. No, I'm pretty sure, looking at it again, I went back and looked at this a couple of times, Paul Grist, who plays Sheverdick, I'm sure he's not on the No, he's not the blokes who are standing in front of Travis. No, no, so his line has been dubbed over. Yes. So that's why they can't actually show anybody's face. Mm. You know, Travis is sort of knocked out in silhouette, but that silhouette doesn't match the action he has diving into. It's a mess. No, it's not very well done. I don't know what Travis has attempted to do. They're sort of cape foo as he swirls his cape at them. And again, this is one of those ones where you could see George Benton Foster saying, OK, I want you to sort of lunge for them. Croucher doing it once and spending yeah. going, right, good, we've got it next take. And Croucher's yeah. like, actually, look, that was terrible. No, nope, no, we got the take, let's move on. <laughs> that is a real that'll do moment, and it is unfortunate. Yes, I think it is. That said, I alluded to this before. I think the location filming, and indeed the filming in the bar down at the rink, mm. is really good. We create this idea that it is this actual underbelly. It's a dark, seedy world. Yeah. Holmes is creating a world that we know has got sort of the... Uh, the affluent stuff at the top. It's got the underbelly. Yeah, and they're down near where the ships land, like the docking cradles and that sort of stuff. So you get a lot of the ship's crews would be going into these dives to blow their money. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the old seamen coming into harbour. Yes. All that sort of thing. It's really effective. What I think is also really good is if you watch Gareth Thomas's performance, he plays as though Blake's sort of looking around going, I'm not really very comfortable here. Whereas Jenna's actually looking around going, 
this kind of reminds me of the old days. Yeah, although it's Blake again who gets to make the deduction that they will find Dockley in one of these dives and that you know, his life on the run really probably now means he doesn't have any money left. Yeah, it's a real missed opportunity. Had it been Jenna who did that That's deduction, the thing. You could have given that to Jenna. Yeah, and she could have said, I've been in so many of these dives. I've been in mm. so many of these space sports. Blake, this is how I lived as a smuggler. Let me tell you. Yeah. That would have been a really good moment. You're right. That is a shame. But as I said, as female characters go, Sheeny does a really good job of standing up to Shevardick. She doesn't back down. She's a strong character. Unfortunately, there's that really badly blocked scene where she basically overtly flags the door by standing in front of it. The actress clearly hasn't been given instructions and just sort of, oh, I'm meant to be over by the door now. No, and she's really lucky that, you know, he gets called away. It's interesting, though, just prior to that, she seems to make the assumption that Jenna and Kelly are prostitutes and that Blake, therefore, clearly is their pimp. You know, the girls have got class and they can probably find work up with Crantor. Yes, she's not implying they can get a job as a croupier. No, and I mean, even if she isn't, Shevardick definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, is a very Robert Holmes thing to do. Just yeah. push the boundaries of family viewing just that little just bit. Just a little bit. Just yep. that little bit. So, at this point, it's Callie who deduces that... Klein is Dockley and he's back in that room. Yeah. Which I saw as a moment of her telepathy being flagged. Yeah, I, I did wonder about that. Is it actually that she is reading Sheenie's mind at that point? Or is it just that she's actually used a bit of nous and just worked out clearly what's going on? It's not a bad moment for her either way. Whether it's Callie getting to use her telepathy or whether yep. it's Callie actually showing a bit of nous, that's good for the character. Unfortunately... We then get this exchange... What did you call me? A cheap little space tramp. A ten credit touch. What? Oh, if you do that again, I'll break the mask. You're not even going on. You're not even going on. You're not even going on. You're Look, Sally Nevet, I think he's having a lot of fun doing that. Jan Chapel, I think he's not. No. Uh, unfortunately, it's sort of one of those that'll do type moments because the audio really isn't faded out properly because, I mean, Jenna calls Kelly a so-and-so. Yeah, I reckon that's one of those examples where the script would have had the first couple of lines written yep. there and it's, you know, brackets. Jenna and Kelly continue to fight. Yes, and we just hear random shouting and that in the background. Yeah, and they don't realise that actually, yeah, we're hearing some of the... <laughs> yeah. Some of the ad-libs. Yes. Blake is deduced that Dockley is on the run, he needs yep. to earn a living... So that means that he has to come back for his medical kit, which yes. which Travis needs, and Travis comes back for it. That leads them all to Dockley. Yep. And then you get basically that Western-style ending where you have the four key characters in that plot. Dockley, Travis, Blake, and Shevardick. Yep. All in the one spot, ready for that final confrontation. If this was a Western, this would be in the main street of town. This is really the moment where at least two of the plot strands converge. That's right. And again, you get that shot off screen we mentioned that happening in countdown it's mm-hmm. probably a bit of a shame it's repeated here but yep. given that travis is not a regular maybe on a first mm. viewing you could wonder who got shot the western dialogue then continues just luck i went to a better school shave it you're a fool travis you're going to die anyway. Not as quick as you. Well, it shows you really how effective Travis is. He's got a crippled arm and he still manages to shoot both Shevardick and his offsider. Yeah. The big build-up is obviously 
Blake's moment, what is the location of Star One? Mm-hmm. And then another one of those perfectly played Dennis Carey lines. It's Dockerly I want to see. What do you want with me? Rog Blake. You may have heard of me. I have a ship called the Liberator. Yes, I've heard of you, Blake. I repeat, what do you want with me? One piece of information. The location of Star One. And you're going to be disappointed. Yes, he's probably not really manic, but very forceful. Yes. At this stage, you are going to tell me what you know. That's right. So, Dockley doesn't know where Star One is. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. Provine clearly doesn't know everything that's going on. Provine was responsible for some of the security clearly on the clearly Star One project. Yeah. He is clearly aware that Dockley was a member of that team. Mm-hmm. Dockley is now on the wanted list. Yep. And I guess Provan has kind of assumed, well, I guess Dockley knows something that he shouldn't. Yes. And he was then posted to um, Albion and yes. went on his way. So that that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It moves the plot along. And in a typical quest sort of manner, Dockley doesn't have the information, but he has the next clue. Yes. And we also learn a bit more of the backstory of Star One here, mm-hmm. that it is so secret that everyone who worked on it had their brain wiped. Yes, well, the technician certainly did. You can probably, maybe the construction people were just shot or something. Well, yeah. <laughs> or turned into mutoids. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But that does up the secrecy around Star 1 and builds that tension across the arc, I think. It does. I did have a note here, really, how Dockley, given he and Lurgan both split up and took off, how he, A, knows where Lurgan is and B, knows so much about what's going on. I will say for a production point, this was material added later this wasn't in Robert Holmes's original script and we'll talk about this obviously over the next couple of episodes but there were some changes to how the end of the season was structured so and again Robert Holmes wouldn't have known exactly how to no. fit it all in so that's been added you're right I I have tried over the years to sort of try and fan retcon how Dockley would know about Lurgan and maybe Lurgan sent him a message like can you tell Dockley I'm safe and this is where I am or something yeah. it's a stretch yeah but you're supposed to be going on the run and into hiding, so... Exactly. But anyway. I really like that confrontation between Mm -hmm. them. I think all the characters work. The problem is the very last part of this plot thread doesn't. It's it's back to the Transformers, we're not going to kill Megatron this time. Oh, you know, I'll get you next time, Optimus Prime. And I guess they do make the point that killing Travis would be a mercy, because really, he's probably at his absolute lowest ebb. He's got nothing left, his arm doesn't work anymore... You sort of have that thing, you're just going to put him out of his misery, basically. But Look, it's not the worst excuse we've had for not killing Travis. But again, it is just another one oh, of, sure. we need to get Travis to the next episode. Yes. You do wonder now, Doc, has gone, how he's going to get his arm fixed. But So the B plot, which does intersect, as you said, with the A plot, is Krantor and Servalan. Mm. This plot is set up with that wonderful first scene in The Big Wheel, where it just opens with this opulent sort of space. In contrast to the very darkly lit bar, it's floodlit white. Yes, I mean, look, they've certainly made an effort here. Unfortunately, doing a large-scale casino is probably beyond Blake Seven's resources. Their casino was one roulette wheel and the chess table. You're right. It's a 1970s budget. But I actually don't care because... Look, they certainly made an effort. 
They've certainly made an effort, and the way that the croupier sells it with that opening speech. Speed chess. The only game of skill in this establishment. The clute challenges all comers. <laughs> A win or a draw gets you a million. One million credits, mes amis. A win or draw against the clout. The biggest prize in the galaxy. Now come on, all you space tracks. Put your life on the line. And beat the clout at speeches. Win a fortune. It's interesting that she says this is the only game of skill in the big wheel. Yes. Which I'm guessing is presumably how Crantor actually keeps tight control over the money flow. Yes, no matter what, the odds are always 5%. And you can't control that if, for example, it's poker. No. I like the way that they're doing that whole sort of festival old costumes with a spacey twist. Yes, and look, it is a clever choice from a production point of view as well, because they can just go down and raid the BBC wardrobe without having to make a lot of special costumes or try and worry about how you're going to outfit everybody. They're just celebrating Mardi Gras. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it works really well and it's just something a bit different and Mm. it means we don't have people in sort of slightly embarrassing space costumes. No, indeed. Let's talk about the first big confrontation scene we have with Crantor and Servalan because this is two actors having a lot of fun pushing the boundaries Mm -hmm. but I don't think ever crossing it into full-on camp it's just really fun and there is a tension underlying the whole thing yes I mean you do have the initial thing where Crantor well seems to think that she's there for a sort of discreet dirty weekend you appear to have misunderstood my message Crantor I am not here officially. But, of course, I understood perfectly. Discretion and delicacy are the very watchwords of my organisation. Just tell me your requirements, and I will see that you are provided with the most sophisticated and subtle forms of satisfaction. You have misunderstood. Yes, and you could imagine many a Federation councillor and official, yep. maybe councillor Joe Ban or, or Ron Tane, you know, they pop in there when they're a bit sick of their families and just, just, just want know, to cut loose for a weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He does say, you know, discretion is his watchword. Absolutely. And it's implied that he can get away with what he does and stay outside the Federation because a few too many of the senior officials quite like having somewhere where they can go and... And engage their uh, peccadilloes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think Servland, though, is actually using this as a cover. So if anybody says, oh, where's Servland off to? Oh, Freedom City. Well, we know what that's for. It's not, I wonder if she's going to go, go find Dockley or something. No. It's just, she's off for a dirty weekend. Yeah. What really makes this scene work, though, is Crantor isn't scared of Servland. As an audience, we know he probably should be. Mm. But he thinks that he's better than her. Plus, she's on his turf, so... That's right. But she's equally completely unimpressed by him, Mm. which makes for a really good dynamic. He tries to flirt with Servalan, but in a really artificial, I'm flirting because I think I should way. Mm. And she completely shuts that down. Yep. Again, 
Robert Holmes has that dialogue where it's not just two characters expositioning to each other, they actually engage in banter. There's the whole thing about Commander, Supreme Commander. There's the whole <laughs> pause, would you like a particular cake? <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I almost sort of took as a like, you know, he's trying to get her a bit drunk or get her a bit under the influence of something so that he can take adv- not take advantage in that sense, but have an edge over her in the negotiation. For sure. I mean, he then makes the point where he offers her some suitably subtle forms of entertainment. Yes. Which she immediately knocks back because, again, yes, he will have a hole over her. They negotiate, they do the deal. Again, the great characterization here that as soon as Serverland goes, Krantor switches off that playful, flirtatious mm. stuff and he is completely in control. Yep. He's already trying to outmaneuver Serverland. Yes. Now, again, as an audience, we know that she will outmaneuver him because we know the character. <laughs> but he is given the credulity and the actual stature as a character to be trying to be ahead of Serverland, yeah. be completely businesslike. He does flirt with toys a bit though he does toys has obviously been listening and making initial inquiries yeah. while serverland is still in the room because he has a report board immediately straight away yeah it is an interesting relationship i think between Crantor and toys toys is perhaps the fixer or the um consigliere if you want to put <laughs> a, a slight mafia spin on it yeah and again for those who are doctor who fans we i think are by law required to at this point mention a classic <laughs> holmesian double act this is the real classic Holmes double act, mm. where you have that over-the-top leader and the, in inverted commas, straight man offsider. Yep. You think about Garen and Unstoff, Glitz and Dibber, Jago and Lightfoot, Iron Gron and Blood Axe. Like, this is a Holmes trope going right through his Doctor Who it works. Is. And we will see it again in Black 7, but we'll get to that in a few months' time. Yes. There is an underlying hint that their relationship goes a lot deeper than that, and there is a a sort of a more intimate level to their relationship. Yes, which is something that Holmes again will play with in a later episode. Yes. It's interesting because Krantor clearly relies on him, but he does make the point of putting Toys back in his place. Well, basically when he thinks Toys is wearing a better costume than he is. Yes, and again, it's the way that they're real characters. They actually do bitch at each other. They talk about what they're wearing. It's not just space conversation. No. And I mean, Toys' response is just to deflect that completely by praising Krantor's outfit. <laughs> That's right. Toys, are you sure that headgear is part of the uniform? It is of the period, Krantor. It looks a little... heavy. May I say that your own costume is... Quite magnificent. It really suits you. Yes, it does, doesn't it? My designer tells me that it is patterned upon the attire of someone called the Prince Regent. Oh, what a pity that everybody doesn't enter into the spirit of carnival of Mardi Gras as wholeheartedly as you and I. (laughs) Now, speaking of... uh speculative and interesting relationships. Can we talk about Jerry Air? It's alright. I am fairly sure that he is not meant to be what some fans have speculated, which is new Travis. No, I very much got the impression he is just the bodyguard, basically. She's drawn for the weekend. Yeah. Now, he is required as a character because Serverland has to plot with someone. Yes, he is the sounding board for her exposition. That's right. (laughs) And look, that is a necessary thing. Again, where a lesser writer would just have a space major walk in, have the plot explained to him and walk out. Holmes makes this guy a character. 
Travis gets to interact with him. Travis gets to demean him. Travis gets to subtly imply that this is another example of Serverland quite enjoying the company of uh, a certain type of man. Yep. It would have been good to actually see him do something, though, other yes. than just sort of sit there and not understand what she's conniving. Whether he took one of Crantle's guards down or something. Yeah. He seems to be wearing a row of little knives or something along his belt, you know, even if he'd thrown them at somebody. Or maybe, just thinking off the top of my head, Crantor has somebody follow Serverland. Yeah, Jerry Jer- takes him out. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, he was following you, don't worry, about taking care of yeah. him, that sort of thing, yeah. That would make the character work better. We've mentioned in other episodes that there are different kinds of neutrality, mm-hmm. and this is another example of a society that is outside the Federation, but... Not very far outside. No. And very clearly, kind of like Switzerland. You know Mm -hmm. that if the Nazis wanted to, they could take it, but it is to their advantage to leave it. Yeah. I think it's the same sort of uh, neutrality there. Where else would all the uh, senators and that go? That's right. (laughs) All of this takes place in that home's world we've discussed. We've got the front, the glamorous casino. We've got the rink underneath. It's implied, again, with just very minimum dialogue, just how much Crantor keeps a tight hold on this. Yeah, and there is clearly a lot more to Freedom City than what we see. I mean, we see a dive pub and, well, presumably part of the casino. Yes, there's clearly a lot more going on, and Crantor, even if he doesn't personally own it all, mm-hmm. he is the big you know, big chief, he has the cash. Yeah. And even just subtle moments like the bit where Serverland says, I've booked room 100 at the terminal. I know. <laughs> you know, he, he knows where people are staying, he knows what people are doing. Yes. And we also get that wonderful surveying line probably one of her most famous lines as well which is uh, what she wants to do to Crantor <laughs> you don't trust Crantor he is a despicable animal when the Federation finally cleans out this cesspit I shall have that vulpine degenerate eviscerated with a small and very blunt knife it's not really a place I don't think that would appeal to Serverland. No. Serverland's particular, whatever Serverland is into, would be done behind closed doors and it would come to Serverland, not Serverland to it. And she would never do anything that would put her position at risk. No. Anything that might give someone else a hold over or undermine her position. Absolutely not. Exactly. And I think she actually does find the fact that others do use this place and put themselves yep. in that position actually offensive. Yes, this place is degenerate. Because the only way that the rest of the plot works is if you understand that more than anything, Serverland wants to get rid of Crantor. Mm, yes. And the rat's nest, clearly, that he's built for himself. And that's why, and, and we discussed this a bit before the episode, Richard, and we'll discuss it here now, the whole final part of this plot, which is planting the unpromped bomb in Travis, mm-hmm. only works if you appreciate that what is more important to her right now than taking out Blake, than taking out Travis, even than Dockley, is that she wants to set up Crantor such that no matter what, it is clear that Crantor knows where Star One is. Mm-hmm. Crantor is still alive. Yes. Therefore... She has an excuse to come in and raise the place. That's yeah. right. And that doesn't work if Crantor is either dead or if Travis and Dockley die before they meet Crantor. No, and really, a lot of the stuff when she's explaining the plot, basically, to, to Jarrier, really is for Crantor's benefit. Yes. Because she knows he's listening. That's right. But the reason the bomb is not primed is because for her plan to work, Crantor must meet Dockley. Yep. Unfortunately, it doesn't, because Blake gets in the way. Yep. 
And indeed, it's actually overtly stated by Serverland, I'm not interested in Blake. No, that's an interesting position, actually. I did also have the question whether she's actually interested in Dockerley just because she wants him silenced, or whether she is trying to extract the information for Star 1 for her own ends. I think that's not clear, and I think that's something we'll leave open-ended for next episode. You're right. I don't think the episode really makes a definitive statement either way. No, I think that's deliberately left Mm. open. As is... Travis's motivation. Now, it's implied here that Travis doesn't care about Dockley or Star One, that he's just using this to find Blake. But that's Serverland's assessment of what Travis is doing. Travis never states it. And no. I think that, again, we can leave this thought open for a couple of episodes' time. Yeah, agreed. We might save that for what happens next. Absolutely. <laughs> to the C-plot, which is the Avonville plot. I don't think there's any doubt this is the part that Robert Holmes had the most fun writing. Oh, for sure. And we said before when we did our episode on Killer, it is a thread through Robert Holmes' episodes. He really enjoys writing for Avon and Villa. And Paul Darren, Michael Keating enjoyed having Robert Holmes yes. writing for them. They've been on record many times saying that. I really enjoy the conversation that we get up here, which isn't Avon and Villa on a mission. It's not them on the flight deck. It's just two work colleagues who've been left behind. And they're bored. And they're bored. And they do have that wonderful bit where they're almost sort of bonding over the whole, you know, if this was just a snake-infested place where your eyeballs are born out, Blake would have sent us. And Villa's having the whinge, but Davon's getting in on it as well. Yes. And then clearly you can see his mind working, well, how do we turn this to our advantage? Absolutely. They say it's wide open. What is? Freedom City. So I've heard. Wide, wide open. Got everything a man ever dreams of, they say. Space City pales by comparison, they say. You know, if it was a desert down there, so hot your eyeballs frizzle, poisonous snakes under every rock. Blake would have sent us. You can bet on it. And then you get that wonderful line of dialogue where Avon explains the background and feels like, I don't get it. And Avon's just like, Orac reads computers. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I see the penny drop. The big wheel is run by a computer that fixes the odds at 5% in favour of the house, right? Right. Right. Orac reads computers. Oh, that is beautiful. Avon, there are times when I almost get to like you. Yes, well, that makes it all worthwhile. I mean, you give me a warm feeling right here, round the money belt. That is so well done. I love that dialogue. I love that conversation. There is that very nice callback to Shadow here as well, where they say that Space City, oh, that's nothing compared to Freedom City. They say. Yes, they <laughs> say. And again, that inference that Freedom City is so much more than we see. There's obviously all sorts of other pleasures that you can indulge in. That's right. A recurring topic we've discussed across Series B that will continue across yep. Series C and D is the lack of understanding of Villa's character by some writers mm. and the degeneration of Villa. Holmes, I think, absolutely gets Villa. And in this conversation, whilst Avon has worked out 
the big picture and how yep. to use Orac. It's Villa who actually has that sort of real world experience, has hung out in dodgy casinos, and he knows you know you can't get Orac you in. You can't that take side. a big box like Orac in there. And no. he's so he's allowed to be more worldly and more shrewd and very practical as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good characterization of Villa. And I just think he's better written here than he is in a lot of scripts in oh, the series. Oh, for sure. Is Avon wanting to go down to Freedom City and break the bank? Look, there's obviously an ego component to it as well. Yep. But is it also really a sort of that two fingers up to Blake? You've left us here on the ship, so screw you, we're just going to go and have our own fun. I think both of those are part of it. Yep. I also think there's an element of the fact that at the end of the day, Avon just likes the idea of being wealthy. Yes. And if he has a chance to take a few million credits off a casino... Why not? And indeed, it would be his money, not something that's just in the room that Blake might use. That's right, yes. I note here that their whole adventure takes under two hours and six minutes. Yeah, I think there's obviously maybe a bit of time elapsed before they go down to Freedom City. They've had enough time to get bored, yeah. But yes, there is a very definite time limit on their part of the story. They go down to the casino. I love the fact that before they get into it, they just stop and have a bit of a drink. (laughs) At which point, they get to watch a Trekker. Yes. Now, is that Holmes having a go at Star Trek fans? I don't know. I did have the note here. You notice Thrills whispers his name in (laughs) Crantor's ear. Now, I'm assuming that has to be so they don't have to pay the extra for a speaking part. (laughs) And so they see a young Trekker willing to challenge the clute at speed chess. And this is designed to set up the stakes, show that nastier edge to Freedom City in the big wheel. Yes. The croupier gives her little spiel, and then Crantor just adds that bit on top to get the crowd even more excited. Absolutely. But the stake is his life. Yes. The clute's only reward. Ah! <laughs> Speaking of it, what is the clute, and do we care? Look, he clearly is some sort of chess-playing savant that Crantor's got there to take money from people. Because you would think there would have to... I mean, look, Crandall has to be getting something out of it. So it must be a case that maybe people can put bets on each move or how long the game will take. I mean, you're probably working on the thing. You've got this chess savant. He's probably going to win. So (laughs) how many moves it'll take before the opponent gets fried or something. I just think he's clearly this strange little dude that's very, very good at chess. The speed chess scene is one that I remember vividly from the first time I saw this when I was about 10 years old. The way it's done, the music... Look, we'll speak about the graphics later, but it builds tension really, really well. And I think the direction actually here from Spenton Foster is really good Mm. because there's exactly the right period of time between the losing of the game. You get to see thrills realise he's lost, you get that moment of panic, that moment of struggle, the clute is milking that moment, and then... Does his evil little laugh. Yeah, and then he presses the button and the thrills get blown up. It's really well done, and I think Spen Foster actually does do a good job in that scene. Yes. I do note, though, I guess being a bit family-friendly, you don't get to see a smoking corpse after he's been electrocuted. He's really just vaporised. Yep, that's right. But the clute is really good. The look the clute gives thrills when he knows he's won. Mm. For someone who's got no lines, that's an amazingly good performance. <laughs> he must have been crazy staking his life. Just risking money isn't always enough. What? If you're a gambler, that's the biggest gamble you can take. That's the real kick. Well, he got his kick all right. Straight up the spine. 
I'm going to mention that we have more blue milk at the casino. Yes, and a couple of times too. By the time we get back to the casino a little bit later, Avon's kind of over it. Is that because he's not the one having the fun or just because it's like, this is actually just too easy? Probably a bit of both because Villa's the one placing the bets and you know spinning the wheel and stuff. There is a production note around this, which we'll do at the end of the episode. But yeah, I think he's probably he's bored now. Yeah, he's had his fun. He's got his millions. Yeah. He wants to go home. We then get the whole interaction between Villa and Crantor. I want to just make a side note here about how much I love the croupier. Again, for a character that only has a couple of lines, we get a couple of great looks that she gives. There's the moment where Villa is a bit drunk and sort of she's a bit over this and he's just winning and she just doesn't care anymore. Yeah, it just gives you that really venomous look. But then there's the moment when Cranter announces that Villa's going to play speed chess and she just gives this wonderful look of great. I never liked you. I know what's going to happen and I'm really happy. Yeah, oh, the bit where he actually attempts to flip her the chip, you know, this is for you and she just bats it away. <laughs> Again, and you spoke about the cast. When we get to the cast segment, yeah, these are characters, even in small roles, that have got serious bodies of work. Yeah, she is really good. And it really does lift it all up. Now, Avon allows Villa to have a drink with Crantor. I took that as being, he's like, you know what? There's no danger here. This guy's probably corrupt, but he's not going to take him out and kill him. No, although I guess given Villa only has chips, he has to get it converted to cash. So there probably is that thing, if we just take off now, we've done our money. Avon vomits on screen. Yes. And that's tied in the production note I mentioned a minute ago. But that is actually a really funny moment. It is a very funny moment. Villa has agreed to challenge the clip. (laughs) (laughs) Again, one that sticks in the memory. I really enjoyed that one. There is a really weird moment, though. As Avon walks from his table up to Villa at the Clute's table, there's a moment where Paul Darrow looks off screen and kind of gives a knowing nod to somebody. Is that a production gaffe, or is that meant to imply that there's something else behind the camera? I sort of took it more to be that, you know, the crowd's applauding and he's like, <laughs> yeah, 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 as he really just moves through the crowd to get over to where Crantor is. Yeah, I never read it that way, but now you say it, maybe it is Paul Darrow trying to imply that there are spectators behind the camera, that yes. this is a large room, and they're sort of going, you know, your mate's stuffed, he's going, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe it is that. That sort of nervous <laughs> clap as he walks over to where Villa is. Yeah, maybe that is that. Avon is willing to gamble with Villa's life. Although, is it that much of a gamble? I think there is that moment of realisation where it is, hang on, with Orac we can still win. We can walk away from this with the 10 million credits. If you wanted to be callous, you could say, well, look, if he does lose, it's only Villa, not him. Yes, that's true. Play Villa. What? Orac will give you the moves. But the clute isn't a computer. Play. I also, maybe this is the sci-fi nerd in me sort of being very, very overthinking here, it occurred to me that if there is a few seconds between the loss of the game and yep. the clute pushing the button, Avon could be, you know, or get us out now True. and teleport them away. But who cares? Having said that, if Villa did get fried, I would love to see the scene where Avon tries to explain that to Blake. <laughs> so on that note, at the start of this episode, Richard, you said that you didn't think there was a climax to this. Yep. I disagree because I actually think that this is the climax. Right. You've seen a guy get killed by the clute. Yeah. You've seen how dangerous this is. Villa's life is at stake. It, but you know they're not going to lose. No, but it's not that sort of episode. The climax is a combination of tension, but also the fun hits the top level. Mm. And as a more fun, witty sort of episode, I think that's an appropriate climax. Not so much a big countdown as you get in countdown. Yep. Okay. Now, 
We do end with the Scooby-Doo ending, but given the tone of all the Scooby-Doo endings we get in Blake 7, yep. this one at least I thought is actually at least funny. <laughs> Welcome back. How did you get on? We managed to reach Dockerley. Oh, great. Wonderful. Terrific. We didn't get the location to Star One. I think it's my turn on call, Avon. Oh, you're back. Filler, I don't like that innocent look. What have you two been up to whilst we've been away? Me? Nothing. Had a little sleep. Um, played a little chess. Played a little chess? And that's all. That's right, Blake. We had a real quiet time. Well, there's not really a forced joke at the end of it. I mean, Avon and Villa, I guess, are doing the, no, 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 we didn't really do anything. Yes, sir. just played a little chess. Yes, and then all of a sudden behind them, Aura clearly returns to full size. Yes. And loses the case in the process. But... <laughs> well, I've always assumed it burst out of the case. Yeah. And yes, they just sort of give Blake that blank look, and you're left to imagine what Blake says afterwards. Mm. And it is actually, I think, a funny Scooby-Doo ending, so I uh, don't mind it this time. Yep. So, Richard, I enjoy a lot of this. I think all mm. three plots do work. Mostly they work because of the characters yep. and because of the actors. That said, though, I'm not blind to the faults here. <laughs> yep. There are moments that are just very lazy. Mm. Is it worth exploring just a couple of them before we move on? Yeah, for sure. So, the one that I had is there's some terrible direction there with Crantor's mirror, which is a lovely idea that he's got yeah, this screen. But where he does things like he waves his arm... Villa's on screen, then which one is he? Yes. That's just lazy. That should have been a wide shot. Yeah. I also had the point probably about how obvious Villa's cheating is with the bracelet up to his ear. Now, look, I've seen Casino and I wasn't really expecting Robert De Niro and Don Rickles to come <laughs> out and drag Villa out the back, but I would have thought you could have done something a bit better than that. I think if you want to make it work in your head, mm. the fact that Crantor and Toys are distracted by Servaland. Yes. Because Crantor does make the point that Villa is putting his hand up to his head. Mm. But then they sort of get distracted, like, we've got to go find Dockley and all that yeah. So, yeah, okay. But but overall, I think it's a really fun episode. I really yeah. like it. Look, I've had fun talking about it. This C-plot really is the fun part of the episode. It's the bit that everybody remembers. Yes, it yeah. is. So we'll dive straight into production notes. I've got a couple of points. I was going to talk here a bit more about the direction, but I think we've really yep. said that. It's got some of Spenton Foster's better direction. Mm-hmm. It's got a couple of his poor moments. Yep. Very small point. Is it Dick or Dish? I thought it was Dick, which maybe is Clever Dick. I don't know, but... Um... <laughs> I think that some characters do say Dish. Right. Uh, toys particularly, but I don't know whether that's just him doing a funny accent. I'm not sure. <laughs> Now, Richard, let's talk about the music here, because it is an unusual one. Or, or lack thereof. Yes. yes. Well, there's no Dudley Simpson this week. No. And it's really just the electronic music, which is mainly over the chess games. Yes, and that's a very memorable and standout piece of music. And mm, That's it, uh, Elizabeth Parker from the Radiophonic Workshop. Yeah, I really like it here, and there's also just a bit of background mood chimes and stuff like that, mm. but I think it works quite well, as much as I like Dudley Simpson, it yep. works quite well. 
I will mention briefly Serverland's red costume, which it's not my favourite, but I really quite like it. This is another example, I think, of her being opulent without mm-hmm. it being ridiculous. Okay. And it's almost one of the very few occasions where she doesn't wear white or black. Yes, that's true, actually. Probably a couple of other notes. We notice when we're on the Liberator, look, probably due to the other sets that they've had to build. We only get the teleport bay this week. Well, I would imagine that the big wheel set would have to have been in the main flight deck yeah. area. Yeah. yeah, that's a big set. For all we've said about it not being as big as a real casino, mm-hmm. for Blake 7, that is a big set. Yes. With stairs and platforms and all that sort of Yeah, thing. which of course also means because there's no flight deck, there's no Zen this week either. So Peter Tudman plays all rack only. That's true, yes. Mm. We said the rink area was quite effectively filmed. Yes. That's the Royal Festival Hall underpass at Southbank in London. That's been used for Doctor Who, hasn't it? Yes, it was previously Future Earth in Frontier in Space. That's right, yes. Yes. No, that's a very effective set. And the fact that it's got buildings over it Mm -hmm. adds a lot of shadow and darkness, which is really effective. Now, a couple of times, Richard, you've alluded to some production notes around the Avon casino scene. Yes, there were a few cuts made to Robert Holmes's initial script. It overran a bit, so there were a few cuts made. Villa's comment around frizzled eyeballs was actually originally gonads. <laughs> so I can see why that got cut. Yes, but that's a very typical thing that Holmes would try to insert. Yes. The other thing is that Avon's spit, I believe that was actually part of another sequence that was filmed and then ultimately not used. Right. When they're sitting in the casino while Villa is playing the table, Avon is eating something in the script. It is apparently called Nicanaka Delights, which is like ice creams. And the progression was that he had eaten a heap of them and then gets to the point, and that feeds into his line where he says he's going outside to be sick. Oh, okay. It wasn't just a, I'm over this. No. Right, okay, well that's interesting to know. There you go. So if you ever do find the original script for Gambit, you can read all about that. Well, on that entertaining note, we will move (laughs) on to our regular segments. So Richard, as always, our first regular segment is Guest Cast. Mm -hmm. A big cast here and a big cast with a lot of credits. Yeah, so we might have to sort of push through these a bit, but... Yeah, we will, but hopefully without not recognising the quality of some of these actors Mm. and actresses. Aubrey Woods as Crantor has got a long history going right back to being quite a well-known child actor in the 1940s. Some of the things that I pulled out there, he was in Up Pompeii, the old curiosity shop. He was in Doctor Who in Day of the Daleks in a very good performance. Yes. Probably his most famous role, though, he is the Candyman in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, he is. My dear boy, do you ask a fish how it swims? No. Or a bird how it flies? No. No, sirree, you don't. They do it because they were born to do it. Just like Willy Wonka was born to be a candy man, and you look like you were born to be a Wonkera. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it in chocolate and a miracle or two? The candy man. The candy man can. Did a lot of stage and theatre work across his career as well. He was with the RSC back in the 1950s. He actually took over from Ron Moody as Fagin in the original run of Oliver. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. And also for another genre credit, the second season of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the original radio serial. Yes. He was several voices in that. So I didn't know that. Mm, there you go. Dennis Carey, who plays Dockley, again has got credits going right back to the 1940s. He was in a heap of really highbrow dramas. He was in The Borgias, he was in The Adventures of Black Beauty, 
by Claudius Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson. So those big costume dramas, yeah. Big costume dramas, The Shadow in the Tower. He was a recurring role in Champion House. And also, he did three Doctor Whos. He was in Sharda, which is now available in many forms, even though it wasn't televised. He was in The Keeper of Traken, and he was in Time Lash with Paul Darrow. Yay. One of the movies he was in, he was in Day of the Jackal. Oh, yes. Yep. He was also in the Barchester Chronicles, which was uh, a big adaptation of Anthony Trollope's yes. books. He also has a very extensive theatre career. He actually did a lot of directing, and quite early on, he moves off the stage, and a lot of his theatre work is directing productions. Okay. There you go. Nicolette Rogue as Sheeny. Not as many credits, but a couple of big ones that I think the audience will know. Terry Nation Survivors, mm-hmm. The Uneden Line, and Zed Cars. Yep. Yeah, she was also in an episode of On the Buses, and I think like a lot of actors who were around then, Dixon and Doc Green. Yes. This actually was her last TV appearance. It was. She, again, another one with quite a bit of stage and theatre work. She was also in the original Oliver. Oh, okay. Yeah. Another thing with her is she is the sister of British film director and cinematographer Nicholas Rogue. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, who a number of movies probably best known perhaps now for The Man Who Fell to Earth yeah. uh, with David Bowie. Yeah. We talk about actors and actresses in this with a long list of credits. Sylvia Coleridge plays the croupier. Yes, now she's got a lot of work. Yep. Her first credit goes back to 1937. Interestingly enough, though, she was in a lot of stuff that people will have heard about. Just to run them through, look, she was in one of our favourite Doctor Who's, I think, Richard, Seeds of Doom, yes. playing the wonderful character Amelia Ducar. Yep. She was in Dr. Finley's Casebook, The Avengers, The Big 1967 Pride and Prejudice. She was in The Tomorrow People. Mm-hmm. She was in Terranation Survivors. She is our Rumpole link this time, yes, which has a too. wonderful, wonderful little appearance in the episode The Genuine Article. Like a lot of the cast of Countdown, she was actually in Paradise Postponed. Yes, which is her final acting credit, which was sadly posthumous. She passed away shortly after completing filming on that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She has, as we said, a long list of credits. She's in a lot of stuff from the comedy series Who Dares Wins to something like Roman Polanski's Tess of the Durbervilles. Yeah. A really genuinely broad... Yeah, a yeah. Um, couple of other shout-outs from me. She was in Ace of Wands, and she was in two little sort of teleplays I was quite fond of, the flip side of Dominic Hyde and the sequel Another Flip for Dominic. And again, in amongst all of her film and television appearances, again, a very extensive body of work in the theatre as well. Paul Grist plays Shevardick. He was also in Doctor Who in The Claws of Axos. Uh, he's been in The Avengers. He was in an episode of Are You Being Served in... Quite a memorable little guest performance. Right. He did 11 episodes of 199 Park Lane in 1965. And probably where I recognised him from is the 1978 Kidnapped. Oh, yeah. Okay. He does actually also have a small role in the movie of Under Milkwood, which is a Dylan Thomas play. I'm not familiar with that Well, it had a very good starring cast. Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Peter O'Toole, and Aubrey Woods. And Paul Grist. Yes, <laughs> Paul Grist. Now, again, this is one of his last acting roles. He actually got out of acting in the late 70s. He was a vintage and classic car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. I believe he's actually still alive. And he, after leaving acting, worked as a restorer and racer of classic and vintage cars, um, particularly specialising in Alfa Romeos. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah. And we have Harry Jones as Gerrier. Again, a surprisingly large amount of work. He's in the 1990s Tomorrow People, which I'm quite fond of. Yep. A lot of comedy work. He's in Brushstrokes. Yes. As Time Goes By. Mm -hmm. He's also in Bergerac. He had a recurring role in Dark Towers. He was in the 1986 
Robin Hood, like a lot of the cast we've talked about in Black Seven. Yeah, I actually watched Robin Hood not all that long ago, and I do remember him in that. He's in the later Jason Connery episodes. Yes, and he's also in Terry Nation Survivors. Yeah, as we said, he's in a lot of stuff, and really well-known series. So into those, he's in The Sweeney, he's in The Bill, Highlander, yeah. Lovejoy, An Ungentlemanly Act. Yes. About take over the Falklands. Yes, that's a very good telling movie. Yeah. Also films, a lot of them are small roles, but they included Clash of the Titans, Eric the Viking. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> and indeed, even Muppet Treasure Island. Yes, that is true. And our final guest cast is Deep Roy, who plays the Clute. Yes. Now, he doesn't have a speaking part in this, obviously, but he is in quite a few Blake 7 episodes, and I think it is the only time he's not buried under a costume. Yes. So we do have to probably give a call out to him here. He obviously has a very extensive body of work. Yes, very well known. There probably are a few anecdotes for Deep Roy as we get into next season. So we might have the Deep Roy discussion then. Yes, there are actually episodes where he has quite important roles. And more to do, yes. So yes, we'll save our conversation for him then. But if you want to know what he looks like outside of the costume, he's the clute. Yes. And of course, he is all the Oompa Loompas in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes. But we'll get to that next season. Yes. Just quickly, we have John Leeson as toys, but we discussed him in Mission to Destiny, we so... did. I will say he has a lot more to do in this one, and this is a much better performance. He's very good in this and plays very well off Aubrey Woods. Yes. In fairness, in Mission to Destiny, he actually only has about seven or eight lines, so... <laughs> <laughs> we'll move then to Liberator Database. A couple of little points I had here. Freedom City is more than just... A casino it is clearly a whole spaceport on a planet. It's yes. not a space station or anything like that. No. And we've discussed Serverland's views of it. We learn there is a race known as the Trantinians. We know they're outside of the Federation and that they don't accept Federation citizens. Yes, so clearly they value their neutrality as well, perhaps. Yes. And as a shout-out, the one member of the Trantinian race we meet is Pat Gorman. Yes, who has the record for the most classic Doctor Who credits other than the actual regulars, I believe. Oh, he actually has more appearances in Doctor Who than a lot of the Doctors. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible number of appearances. Yeah. We also know that of the 30 people that were responsible for the building of Star One, 29 had their minds wiped by Dockley. Yep. The last one, though, he had a crisis of conscience and let go. He faked the wiping of the brain by instead just doing a copy of it. Yes. Gave Lurgan the copy. Yep. And Lurgan is now on the run with that copy and the knowledge yes. of where Star One is. And the end of the episode tells us that Lurgan has gone to ground on a planet called Goth. That's right. Which is clearly a bit savage. Which leads us into our What Happens Next segment. At the end of the episode, we leave Crantor having blown it, as Toys says. Yes, he's down 10 million credits. But he did get 4 million from Serverland. That's true. And although he fails to find Dockley, that's probably saved his life and his city. Yep. My feeling is that Crantor and Freedom City are probably safe at the end of this, partly because Serverland hasn't got the pretext she wanted. Mm-hmm. And look, looking ahead to what's going to happen in the Black 7 universe, I think that she's going to be busy doing other things. I think so too. I also think Dockley's probably okay from here. I think he's going to get out of Federation space, the Trantinians will look after him, and again, knowing what's happening in the very near future in Black 7, yep. I think that, well, well, his secret... Well, let's just leave it there. Yes, but he will presumably, yes, get far enough outside Federation space and just go to ground. Yeah, until such time as his secret is no longer worth anything. Mm-hmm. Or Cheney comes to join him. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to, look, it was the 1970s. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot here for this segment this week, but I do want to say that the whole chess competition and this 
sort of romanticising of chess reminded me certainly of the famous Spassky-Fischer competitions which really popularised chess in the 1970s. But you've got some more on that, Richard. We are very much in the era of Bobby Fischer. He wins the world title and then really, when he's challenged, walks. Yes. Gives away the title by default. Robert Holmes' script apparently indicated that the games that we see on screen should be based on the recent Karpov v. Korshnoi match. Right. They were two other chess grandmasters active at the time. They met three times. They'd been in 1974, uh, and they met again in 1978, so around the time this would have been written. Yep. Karpov won both matches, Mm -hmm. and he would actually go on to win the third match against uh, Korshnoi when they met in the early 1980s. So, Well, there you go. And as we mentioned in our weapon episode, this was also about the time the very first computer chess sets were starting to come out. Yes, so it would have been a big deal. The graphics do date this quite uh, obviously. Yes, they are definitely a sign we are in the 1970s. (laughs) So our final segment is What Cool Lines Did Chris Boucher Give Avon This Week? Mm. I had the uh, response to Villa, well, that makes it all worthwhile. Yes, Villa does his line about there being times he almost likes Avon. Yes, well, that makes it all worthwhile. He's walking out to be sick, I'm quite fond of. Yes. The one actually that got me this time was the bit where Travis first looks at Jarrier and says he looks like a powder puff. That's a very funny line. But the thing that got me actually is certainly when she says, yes, well, let's forget the pleasantries. <laughs> I did wonder if that was an ad lib because she delivers that so well. Yes. We said this was a sparkling script and there are a lot of cool moments in it. They're actually weren't a lot of lines that really stood out. No, it's more about the interaction between characters. It's yes. Servalan and Travis, Servalan and Crantor, Crantor and Toys, Avon Villa. They were just really good dynamics. Yes. I did have one last one uh, where Avon and Villa are watching Thrills play his chess match. Avon says, well, if you're a gambler, that's the biggest gamble you can take. That's the real kick. <laughs> Villa sort of looks over and says, well, he got his kick, all right. Straight up the spine. <laughs> Which brings us all to our Player of the Week. Richard, this has been my episode, so you get to go first. Who is your Player of the Week? Right. I actually think it's an episode, with the exception perhaps of the Avon and Villa plot, this is more an episode around the guest cast. Yes. And probably Serverland of the regulars. Mm -hmm. I am going to give an honourable mention to Dennis Carey. Yes. Because I thought he was really good. I'm actually going to give an honourable mention to Brian Croucher. Because, as I said, I actually think this is his best performance in the series thus far. Yep. However, look, I really couldn't go past Aubrey Woods as Crantall, though. Snap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed a snap for Dennis Carey, as the honourable mention. Yes. Yes, uh, Aubrey Woods does form a double act with John Leeson, but the stuff where he is on the bed interacting with Serverland, that is a great scene and really, really well played. Yeah. As I said, I agree entirely with you. I had Dennis Carey as my honourable mention, mm-hmm. and I had Aubrey Woods as Crantor as my player of the week. The way that he can play all the different aspects of the character, switch between them, he's so entertaining to watch. Yeah. He's able to go toe-to-toe with Jacqueline Pierce mm-hmm. and not be diminished by it. It's a really, really good and a very memorable performance, especially because of the silver makeup. Yes. Which he gets in a lot of his uh, science fiction TV. <laughs> I will give two other honourable mentions, because we did sort of big them up a bit during the performance. I really like Nicolette Rogus Cheney. I yes. thought she did really well. I love the croupier. Yes, they're uh, both really good. Yeah, she, The whole she cast is, is good. She is great, the croupier. Yes. Look, it comes back to my opening comment. A really good script, a really good cast... 
occasionally let down by some production stuff, but hey, look, it's Blake 7. Yep. It's production is the 1970s. <laughs> I, I really enjoy this one. I think season yep. two is continuing to give us some really good episodes. Yeah. Look, I've had a lot of fun actually going through this one. I've always really liked the C plot. It's just probably the A and B plots that let me down a bit. I certainly enjoy watching it, and I've had a lot of fun talking about it. As have I. But as we said at the start, the arc is really getting into gear now. Yep. Blake has the next clue in the quest to find the location of Star One. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, next episode, we'll be talking about The Keeper, which I must admit, I haven't watched for a long time. Right. So I'm interested to see what I make of this one. Okay. Yep. But until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Goth. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Just once more, but after this I warn you, I'm walking out to be sick.